Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Well, good, after, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to this um, uh, Institute for Policy Research public lecture. Um, I'm Nick Pierce. I'm the director of the Institute. And I'm very pleased uh, this afternoon to be able to welcome David Stasasevich from New York University, professor of politics at New York University, who's come to talk to us about the book you can see up there, that is written with Kenneth Sheeve, I think it's Kenneth Sheeve, Sheeve, sorry, of Stanford University. Um, and it couldn't be more timely, of course, with the Panama Papers leak, and it's a global repercussions, the resignation of the Icelandic Prime Minister, you know, it's, it's, it's gone to China, to Russia, and of course, closer to home, our Prime Minister has had a very torrid time recently with the revelations of um, his father's uh, offshore investments. And... Really, of course, you know, what's behind all of that public disquiet is the sense that the rich are finding ways of not paying their fair share of taxes, uh, whilst the rest of us pay uh, through our payroll and you know, dil diligently get on with paying our taxes. The rich find ways through their political power and through their economic muscle to avoid paying their fair share. So it's a really good time to talk about this book, which is all about uh, the history uh, in the US, the UK and other advanced economies of how we have taxed the rich in the past, uh, why we tax them, or appear to tax them less now, and what we might do about it. So, very, very timely uh, to have you here, David, and you're very welcome. Okay, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I, I'm uh, delighted to be here. Uh, and as Nick was saying, it, it is indeed timely given the Panama Papers release, although in the US so far, at least, there's been less attention devoted to that. Uh, we'll see what happens going forward. Uh, normally, if you saw a book like this with a title like Taxing the Rich, you might think this is a fairly polemical uh, uh, kind of book, or it's the book that might wants to make a clear statement. Um, uh, what we've actually done here, uh, I hope you'll be convinced, is something that's quite different. Uh, a lot of existing uh, work that's written about uh, taxing the rich uh, is in the format of things, articles, books that will take a very clear prescriptive line, what should be done. Sometimes it's very polemical in nature. Uh, the objective of this book is to conduct a more neutral analysis uh, and to step back and ask what happened and why it happened, looking at 20 countries over a span of 200 years, those 20 countries involving most of Western Europe, North America, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea, uh, in a sense, uh, a good part of the advanced industrial world, as it used to be called. Um, and we're going to use the material to tell us when and why governments tax the rich, and then we're going to show why this tells us something about debates today. Uh, and I'll get very much to talking about uh, current tax debates in the UK and the US, uh, towards, towards the end of this talk. So this is a book that doesn't prescribe what we want to do. It sort of steps back and we say, uh, based on what has happened with history, how can we understand how people have thought about this issue of whether the, rep, the rich should be taxed at higher rates than, than everyone else in society. This is the, what we call the big picture for, for taxing the rich. Uh, the backbone of the book involved the collection of statutory rates of income and inheritance taxation for these 20 countries over 200 years. Collecting data on tax rates is actually a very complicated issue because they're not regularly reported by finance ministries. So generally what one has to do to be certain and to get long run series, one has to go back to the original legislation. Uh, we had RAs speaking and reading a large number of different languages help us with this. And this is the big picture that we get by looking at the top statutory rate uh, of income tax and the top statutory rate of inheritance tax 
averaged across our, our 20 countries. That the 19th century, as many people already know, was an era of extremely low uh, taxation of the rich. It was also an era, of course, where the size of the state uh, in the aggregate was very small. And then right about 1914, we see a dramatic increase in some countries, which pulls the average up in terms of top rates of uh, income taxation and top rates of inheritance taxation following behind but a little bit below with another kick up around the time of World War II and then a plateau that, that exists and remains until sometime in the 1970s and then a gradual decline uh, to the point where the average uh, top statutory rate of income taxation across our 20 countries today is just a little bit below below 40%. So that means that the US is today is right at the average internationally and the UK is a little bit above. So that's the big picture that we'd like to try to explain in this book. There is a wealth of information on what these ta top statutory rates actually tell us in the book. I'm not going to, to bore you with that right now, but what we are quite careful to do is see whether these statutory rates are a good proxy for the effective rates that people actually do pay, and they turn out to be so, uh, because obviously the statutory rates might not necessarily reflect uh, what people pay after relevant deductions, exemptions, and other sorts of privileges that might be accorded. So the big picture is taxes on the rich went up, they stayed up for a while, and then they came right back down. Um, just to insist on one point, it's also useful to think of this in terms of what's happened to the size of the state over time across our 20 countries. This is the average across our 20 countries of revenue to GDP from 1870 to the present. And you see, not surprisingly, uh, during the 20th century, there was a very dramatic increase in the size uh, of the state. And so what that means then is that if you're looking at the current decrease in taxes on the rich and weighting that by the relative size of government, in fact, you'd think it would make it seem truly as if the decrease in taxes on the rich has actually been much larger than, than would be the case if you just looked at the headline uh, top statutory rate. So relative to the size of government, during this era, uh, since the 1970s, the rich, at least the very richest individuals, have been taxed less and less, whereas the size of the state has grown. And if the size of the state has grown, that means other people are paying taxes somehow. So, when we say the rich, I should also say exactly who we mean because that can mean many different things. We're talking about people who are in the top 1% of the income or the wealth distribution or in fact usually well within the top 1% of the, the wealth uh, or, or income distribution. So this is not people who are merely above average or something like that. We're, the, the book is really focused on those at, at the top and it should, be, it should be read as such. So this is the sort of the big picture, the broad picture that we're trying, we're trying to explain in the book. Uh, there are some possible explanations one might think of, and certainly that people have offered when we think about why governments might tax the rich and why they have taxed the rich over time. One has to do with rising inequality. If you look at what happened in the early 20th century in a number of countries, it was clear we know from uh, evidence both from wealth inequality and income inequality that the early 20th century was a period where the top 1% had a very high uh, share of both total national income and total national wealth. So it may have been that when governments raised taxes on the rich, they did that in order to respond to existing high levels of inequality. Interestingly enough, 
when in the book what we do is we conduct a sort of thorough statistical analysis where we look at the overall relationship between inequality of either wealth or income and top uh, rates of uh, income or inheritance and we see little evidence on average that governments respond to rising inequality by taxing the rich more heavily. And I think this is a very important point because at least certainly in the US today, many people seem befuddled and they seem to suggest that, well, if inequality has been rising to this degree, why is there not more of a tax effort uh, to, 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 to tax the rich to sort of correct this? Uh, wouldn't this be natural in a democracy? Um, and in fact, it doesn't seem to be the case. The current period in the US or the UK is not actually atypical. It's more typical of what we observe and practice is that on average across these 20 countries over 200 years, governments on average do not respond to rising inequality by taxing the rich more heavily. Um, democracy, what about that? What about the advent of electoral democracy, universal suffrage with competitive parties mobilizing the working class? something that occurred uh, towards the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century in most of our countries. As I'm going to show you, there's not a tremendous amount of evidence for democracy being the driver behind changes in taxing the rich either. That again has a more important point for what we, or the situation we're in today. We shouldn't be surprised to see that there's less taxation of the rich even though we're still in a democracy in the US or the UK. This may actually be more of a a normal situation. So what do we think drove trends in taxation of the rich? Our answer is that what, is most, what has been most important has been what's in the heads of people, of, of voters, ordinary voters, and ordinary voters adhering to different norms of fairness, but they're contested notions of fairness. There are strong fairness arguments for taxing the rich. There are strong fairness arguments against taxing the rich. And the politics of taxing the rich in these countries over these 200 years has been driven by the extent to which changing underlying circumstances may make some of these norms more powerful at the time than other. What exactly do I mean by these contested notions of fairness? In the book we emphasize empirically what we see is that there are three main types of fairness arguments for and against taxing the rich that have been made. The first what we call equal treatment is a fairness argument against taxing the rich more heavily than everybody else, that is, in a higher rate than everybody else. And you can find evidence of this argument going back to 16th century Florence, as we show in the book. And it is something that a number of American voters adhere to today. It's something that's been around for 500 years. The idea is, is that if we think in a democracy that everybody has one vote, and in theory their vote should count the same, then there's a parallel with regard to taxation that everybody should pay the same tax rate. This is the way the argument is being expressed. And for a lot of people, it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful argument. So if you survey American voters today, you will find a substantial minority of the American electorate uh, favors a flat tax where everybody pays the same rate. Uh, and we found in our own surveys that we conducted in our, in our research that when we asked people to choose between different tax schedules and they chose a flat tax, they often offered this fairness-based argument, this equal treatment argument for a flat tax rate. The most common argument in favor of taxing the rich that's been offered over these 200 years is based on the simple principle of ability to pay. That a thousand pounds in extra taxation for someone who's wealthy is less of an inconvenience 
than it would be for someone who's not wealthy. So therefore, the rich should logically pay a higher rate of tax than everybody else because they can better afford to. This is at the cornerstone of uh, modern um, economic thinking about, about taxation uh, uh, to the extent you would also want to take into account efficiency considerations. It's a powerful argument in favor of taxing the rich at higher rates than everybody else. We find that many members of the electorate, if you survey them, adhere to this norm. When we surveyed people and they said, well, and we asked them, well, why did you choose a more progressive tax schedule? They would say, because the rich can better afford it. So it's a very powerful argument, but it's not an argument we think that has sufficed to carry the day at most in most places at most times. The third type of fairness argument that we think has been particularly powerful has been what we call a compensatory argument. A compensatory argument for taxing the rich uh, comes into play in a case where people believe that the state itself has already treated people unequally somehow. That somehow the poor and the middle class have been asked to sacrifice when the rich have not, and therefore the rich should be taxed more heavily as compensation, almost in a sense of using two wrongs to, to, to make a right. As I'll show you, the most important example of a compensatory argument, the most powerful compensatory argument that has existed over the two, past 200 years occurred during the two world wars when there was a perception of unequal uh, sacrifice in the war effort uh, that needed to be compensated by increased taxation, uh, uh, increased taxation <coughs> of the rich. So those are the three principal fairness-based arguments that we think exist out there in the electorate for and against taxing the rich. Okay, in what remains of the talk, I'm going to try to do two things. I'm going to go through a little bit more carefully explaining the rise of taxes on the rich that occurred during the first half of the 20th century. Then I will talk about how we might think about explaining the decline in taxes on the rich that happened over the last 40-odd uh, years or so. And then finally, I'm going to ask what all this can tell us about today's tax debates uh, in the United States and in the United Kingdom. Okay the rise of taxes on the rich. What happened? If we think of the world in 1913 in Western Europe, um, we were in a situation where political parties of the political left, be they labor, socialist, social democrat, in some cases liberal, uh, were pushing for income and inheritance taxes to be established with progressive rate structures. This was uh, definitely a project of the political left. It was something that the right resisted. The result by 1913, in most of the countries we looked at is that income and inheritance taxes were in place. But importantly, crucially, when you think about income tax, the top rates of income tax were extremely low, less than 10%. So unheard of by modern standards. Uh, if you think about the people's budget in the UK and, and Lloyd George's uh, uh, modifications of income and inheritance tax, it would still a case that even after 1909, the top rate of income taxation was less than 10%. The top rate of inheritance taxation at the UK prior to World War I peaked at 15%. So by modern standards, these are extremely low rates. And so we need to say that it may be the case that parties of the political left and center at this time were successful in pushing through the creation of income and inheritance taxes, but they weren't successful in pushing through income and inheritance taxes with very high top rates. A 10% top rate is not going to do much uh, to change inequality, nor is a 15% uh, top marginal rate for inheritance taxation. There's little evidence in our data, and I'll show you this in a second, that universal suffrage did much to generate a change in top rates, or that 
the advent of parties of the left uh, taking a role in government did much either. Uh, it was instead mass warfare in 1914 that was the game changer. Let me show you this a little bit more carefully. This is a graph that takes a, a number of our countries and sets the year at which they attain, achieved universal suffrage as year zero and then looks at what ha was happening to the top marginal rate of income taxation prior to that, 10 years prior to that date, and 10 years uh, after that date. The thin gray lines are the individual country lines. The thick black line is the average of all of these. What do we see? We see, if you think about pre and post universal suffrage on average, almost no difference. It didn't make a difference. It's not really clear that universal suffrage suddenly resulting in countries uh, and governments increasing their top rates of income taxation. So this, this is an interesting feature. You might say, well, maybe it wasn't universal suffrage alone that mattered, but maybe what mattered was that you needed to have universal suffrage and a socialist, social democratic, or labor party getting elected and actually taking a role in government. So we also did a third, or a second analysis like this. This pulls together all the instances in our sample where we get a change between uh, a party that is socialist, social democratic, or labor uh, taking control uh, of government versus not having, being in control, uh, setting that date as year zero, and then looking at what happened five years in the five years prior to that date and in the five years after that date. There are individual cases where some governments of the left, when they came into power, raised top tax rates. But again, the average effect is very, very minimal. In fact, it's just about zero. That doesn't mean that the struggle between left and right did not matter for taxing the rich. What it does suggest that if something changed, it had to be something that changed that pulled both left and right parties in one direction towards taxing the rich, almost as if the left had advocated this, but the, for something that happened that the right was forced to concede it when underlying circumstances changed. What are these underlying circumstances that changed? World War I. Empirically, we see a very huge, a very large effect of top tax rates going up in countries that mobilized for World War I compared with countries that did not mobilize. And you can compare countries like, say, Sweden and the Netherlands that did not mobilize versus the US, the UK, and France that did mobilize. And you see very, very distinct differences. What's interesting about this is that this was not a case of taxes going up on everybody, as you might expect to have happened in wartime. It's actually a case where, during the First World War, there was a net shift towards increasing the tax burden of, on the rich relative to everybody else. So something was going on that drove this massive shift in tax progressivity so that suddenly for the war mobilization countries, if their average top in income tax rate prior to World War I stood at about 4%, uh, a few years after the conclusion of the war, it stood at 50%. That's a really remarkable change when you think about the fact that today, in the UK, you're debating whether the top rate should be 40, 45, or 50%, all within a 10% band. A shift from 4% to 50% is absolutely extraordinary. What was it that drove this? We argue in the book that the thing that drove this was a new compensatory argument for taxing the rich. This was a statement by the Trade Unions Congress in 1916, picked up by the Labor Party, where they made a very clear argument in favor of what they called a conscription of wealth. The idea was, as the manhood of the nation has been conscripted to resist foreign aggression, the Congress demands that such a proportion of the accumulated wealth of the country be immediately conscripted. 
the mechanism through which this ended up happening and that uh, uh, conservative governments agreed to in, either to, in order to sort of forestall uh, a, a more complete redistribution of wealth was a drastic increase in top uh, inheritance tax rates as well as top income tax rates. So there was a new compensatory <laughs> argument for saying if the poor and the middle class have been, have been forced to, uh, uh, um, to, to, to sacrifice by being conscripted, then everybody else uh, uh, who is in the rich should be con uh, conscripted as well in a different way. Um, by having their, their, their wealth taken away. Okay, what was the impact of this wartime compensatory argument? Labor in the UK drove uh, uh, their 1918 election manifesto, included this claim directly. They were hugely successful with it. Parties of the left elsewhere in other countries used the same idea of a conscription of wealth. Uh, parties of the right uh, conceded the point, and so you get a point where Prior to World War I, the economist was favorable to low rates of top, uh, low top rates of income and inheritance taxation. Uh, by the end of the war, even the economist conceded the point that there should be some form of a, of, a con of a conscription of wealth. So what we have then is a new compensatory argument that occurred because of the war that forced, that allowed the left to push in favor of higher taxation of the rich, and the right was forced, forced to concede this point. Um, and we have some more detailed evidence on tracking compensatory arguments in the House of Commons, but I'm going to skip over this slide in the, in the interest of time. Okay, so what happened with this compensatory argument over time? We have a great deal of discussion of this in the book in terms of the narrative and speeches and parliamentary debates in different countries, but let me just show you one thing, which is a sort of crude way, but an interesting way to track these compensatory arguments over time. Uh, the dark line here is a line representing the frequency of the use of the term equality of sacrifice in the English language uh, from the Google Ngrams uh, database, which is basically all printed text in English that Google has succeeded in, in vacuuming up. Uh, and what it shows, we use this term equality of sacrifice here because initially when it was in, created by John Stuart Mill in 1844, the term equality of sacrifice meant simply that a rich person could afford to pay more. But in the wartime context of the 20th century, equality of sacrifice became used in this new compensatory way by saying, well, if everybody else was being forced to sacrifice in the war effort, then the rich should sacrifice as well. What do we see about the frequency of this term? The frequency of this usage of, of this term rose dramatically during the First World War and during the Second World War, and then it tailed off afterwards. So it's almost as if there was a period where these compensatory arguments were powerful, or at least powerful, they were frequently present, and then it trailed off after 1945. If you look at frequency of appearance of the term equality of sacrifice uh, in uh, the UK uh, House of Commons debates, you see a somewhat similar picture, uh, and you see a somewhat picture, similar picture in the, in the US Congress. So there's a hint then that these compensatory arguments were, comp were powerful uh, in the political arena during the era of the two world wars, but that after the end of the second world war, these compensatory arguments gradually became less compelling and we see them less frequently referred to. So it's almost as if the, the fairness force that drove tax rates up was present during these middle decades of the 20th century and then tailed off afterwards. So that's our story of how taxes on the rich uh, rose initially 
Uh, explaining the decline of taxes on the rich is what I want to talk about now. And I've already hinted at that by suggesting that these compensatory arguments, these wartime compensatory arguments became less present uh, in the decades following the end of World War II. Um, but first of all, before I get to that, let me talk about some alternative explanations that people will often alter, offer for the decline in taxation on the rich. One clear uh, argument that's been made is globalization. Uh, increased capital flows allow people to put their money elsewhere, as we know from Panama Papers. Uh, maybe that drove governments to have low rates of taxation because they feared that if they had made to, tried to maintain high rates of taxation, they wouldn't gain any money at all. We have a statistical analysis reported in the book where we actually have data for these 20 countries uh, on capital controls over time. If the globalization hypothesis is right, you might expect that the countries that liberalized capital controls first were also the ones to reduce tax rates on the rich uh, and lockstep. That didn't happen. We don't actually see a correlation. So while we say in the book we agree very much that when it comes to corporate income taxation, uh, increased capital uh, flow, uh, um, dropping capital controls may have had an effect on pushing corporate tax rates down. With respect to personal income tax rates, we don't see uh, such a link. What about another possibility? Um, by the 1970s, a number of economies uh, were experiencing economic turmoil. An argument could have been made that, well, we needed to cut top tax rates in order to stimulate growth. If that's the case, on average, overall, we might have expected to see that countries that had the biggest slowdown in growth during this period of the 1970s were the ones to cut taxes the most. And the UK experience might lead you to believe that. But in fact, if you look across our 20 countries, we don't see any correlation between uh, uh, growth slowdown during the 1970s being associated with uh, cut taxes on the rich. Another, this is a very popular explanation offered for the decline of taxes on the rich in the US today, where we know that the US is, uh, is almost unique, or probably certainly unique, in having an immense amount of uh, 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 having money play a very large role in politics. And so maybe what's happened is that as money has played an increasingly large role in politics in the United States, this has served to force taxes on the rich down because, of course, the rich have more money to give for political campaigns than everybody else. The problem with this captured democracy argument is that countries where money plays much less role in politics like Canada or Sweden have cut taxes in lockstep with the United States. So this is a general phenomenon that hasn't been specific to countries where, uh, where, where, where money plays an important role in politics. Therefore, we're not saying that it, there's never a case where the rich are able to capture policy by giving campaign donations, but we don't think this suffices to explain the broad decline in taxes on the rich over the last 40 years. So our answer is that we think that what happened was that by the late 1970s, politicians on the left no longer had access to the same sort of wartime compensatory arguments that had once been made to justify taxation of the rich on fairness grounds. And in that environment, it was more likely that people could make equal treatment claims or other claims that would suggest that taxes on the rich should be reduced. Let me give you just one illustration of this, and this is sort of the issue faced by the Labour Party um, in two different manifestos. The 1945 Electoral Manifesto coming out of World War II uh, is calls for the rich to be taxed as compensation for wartime sacrifice of others, and this was a very powerful argument. 
This was an argument that was also made in a number of other electoral manifestos from, in, from parties on the left in, in, in other countries. And so for a while after 1945, this was a powerful force that everybody had sacrificed during the war, particularly the poor and middle classes, and so the rich should be taxed as compensation for this. Now think about what happened to parties of the left like Labour in the UK or the Democrats in the US, if you want to acknowledge that they're a party of the left, um, by 1979. This is a statement from the 1979 Labour Manifesto that calls for a new tax on the wealthy and says the system must be fair and be seen to be so. But what's interesting about the Labour Manifesto by that point was that there was no attempt to say exactly what fair meant or to justify it in terms of either war sacrifice or something else. And I could show you an example from the Democratic Party platform of 1980 that is almost identical, that basically says we should tax the rich because it's fair, but it doesn't say why it's fair. And so it's almost as if the left had lost its big fairness argument for taxing the rich and was sort of struggling to think about, well, what would the exact fairness argument be in this new context? And so in 1979, uh, as you all know, th uh, this manifesto argument didn't work quite as well for labor as had the wartime compensatory argument in 1945. So the idea then is that underlying conditions changed, the compensatory fairness arguments of old were no longer uh, e e so easily made, and you entered into a new era of taxation of the rich. Okay, but let me conclude in the last 10 minutes by telling you a little bit about what I think this means for today's tax debates. Two quick things. First of all, what we've suggested so far is that heavy taxation of the rich is most politically feasible when compensatory arguments come into play. These are generally wartime arguments, but not exclusively. Sometimes people have tried to make arguments about saying, well, if sales taxes or indirect taxes or VAT have aggressive incidents, then a compensatory argument can be made for taxing the rich uh, through, through income or inheritance taxation in order to, get to counterbalance that. Without compensatory arguments, though, without in particular wartime compensatory arguments, what happens is that taxes, debates over taxing the rich have mostly involved this struggle between people emphasizing equal treatment claims and the strength of the ability to pay, at least uh, these two contending fairness arguments. And so it's been more difficult in this era for people to come up with strong fairness-based arguments in favor of very high tax rates on the rich. What we can expect going forwards then we would predict that we should not expect to see large increases in statutory tax rates on the rich. What that means is that, yes, they may see that, you know, when the government of the left comes into power in one country, you may see an increase by 5% in the top rate, but it's not going to be that much more because the political support for it is not there. <coughs> what we do think, though, is that there's going to be more support going forward for a tax saying that the rich should be taxed at at least the same effective rates as everybody else. So what we're saying is there's not agreement on taxing the rich at higher rates than everybody else, but they certainly should be taxed at at least the same effective rates as everybody else. And this is something that both people who believe in the ability to pay version of fairness and the equal treatment version of fairness should agree on. Now let me illustrate these three points by referring to what's happening in terms of the US electoral debate as well as what's happening uh, in debates about uh, taxing the rich in the UK today. Um, the current debate in the US uh, involves a series of platforms from uh, electoral candidates where there's no agreement on what the top tax rate should be. When you think about Sanders wanting to raise it from its current 39.6% to 54.2%, 
all the way down to Ted Cruz, who would like to establish a VAT, but he doesn't call it a VAT, and then have a flat income tax rate of 10%. There's a tremendous degree of division between the candidates in terms of the tax rate that they would like. Um, and that's, that's an interesting feature. But if you look at what the candidates are proposing in, in the US today, interestingly, on left and right, there's actually been some more consensus on another thing, on, effect, uh, uh, on policies affecting effective rates for the rich, to see that the rich don't at least, uh, at least pay the same rate as everybody else. So for example, in the US today, um, as you have in the UK, there's, a, there's a, a provision whereby fund managers can classify what you might think of as income as carried interest, therefore they're paying capital gains tax, long-term capital gains tax of only 15%. This results in a situation where in the US today, people at the very, very top are actually paying effective tax rates often that are lower than those who are not at the very, very top. That's an odd feature of the US system. That, that feature does not exist as dramatically in the UK. In the US today, once you get in the top 1% of income earners, the higher, the more you earn, at a certain point, your effective tax rate actually begins to drop. And the reason for that is, is that so many of these people in the top 1% are benefiting from uh, this provision or for other provision to, get, to carry, uh, have income that's mainly coming in the form of capital gains. Um, there's support on both left and right. Jeb Bush proposed getting rid of this. Donald Trump has proposed getting rid of this. Cruz would do the same by having a rate of capital gains income taxation that would be the same as the rate of income tax. Uh, Hillary Clinton has proposed getting rid of this. Bernie Sanders has also proposed getting rid of this. What does this mean? It means that if these candidates are smart, as we, well, we hope they are, um, <laughs> that they are, they could be crazy and smart too, in the case of some, uh, that what's happening is they're responding to a sense in the electorate that this is an issue that plays, that you may not be able to convince, win over people necessarily by saying, oh, we should tax the rich at higher statutory rates than everybody else, but at a minimum, what we ought to be doing is thinking about these privileges that exist in some instances that allow the rich to pay a lower rate of tax uh, than, than everybody else. And there's, as a, just a second point, I've already referred to this in the U.S. debate today, there's a sense that um, harmonizing rates for capital gains and ordinary income from some of the, some of the, some of the candidates is, is also suggested. So it, what we're saying here then is that, again, just to repeat, hopefully not ad nauseum, there's not great support overwhelmingly for raising top tax rates on the rich, Sanders voters aside, uh, but there is much broader support for implementing these reforms that would see that the rich at least don't pay a lower rate of tax than everybody else. Now, I'm going to suggest that we see something very similar, I think, beginning to happen uh, it, with the current debate in the UK. So much of the debate in the UK has been about the top rate, the headline rate, whether it should be 40, 45, or 50 percent. And what's interesting is that polls show, depending upon which poll you use over the past few years, there's probably a small majority or sometimes a slightly larger majority of the UK electorate in favor of having a, a top rate of 50 percent as opposed to 45 percent for income tax or, or 40 percent. But this is a, 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 a poll that's split very much along party lines. Uh, a minority of uh, Tory, self-identified Tory voters would support this, whereas a large majority of Labour voters would support this. So that suggests that we would expect, depending upon uh, how uh, Labour uh, and, and, and Conservative oscillate and sort of control a government that the top rate might go up by 5% or down by 5% depending upon who's controlling power. But if you think of other policies, 
policies that involve, again, having at least ensuring that the rich do not pay less than everybody, a lower effective rate than everybody else, you see UK polling support is much broader. And I know non-DOM status got to be a, have a sort of totemic feature, and it's not quantitatively the most important thing for the UK, uh, UK Treasury, but I think it's very illustrative, and to the extent that when you look at polling and what it says about abolishing something like uh, like non-domiciled status, there's much broader support on, on the part of both uh, Tory and, 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 and Labour supporters. And so what I would think then is that as we saw in the US, in the UK there's going to be this feature where politicians are going to be pushing in the direction of saying, well, what we're doing is advocating policies that say that the rich at least pay the same rate as everybody else. And if you think of what happened in the Commons on Monday, the statements by the Prime Minister, as well as the leader of the opposition, went in exactly this, this direction. If you thought of how Cameron sought to defend himself, part of it was saying, well, um, you know, wealth creation is a good thing for the economy, but part of what he said was precisely this. He said that we've taken reforms that were resulting in people not paying, fund managers not paying less than their secretaries. So it's referring to this sort of argument, this sort of fairness-based argument. And if you look at what the leader of the opposition said, he wasn't sort of having a clarion call for saying we should have a top marginal rate of 60% or 70%. He made the exact same sort of statement that the rich should not pay a lower rate of tax than everybody else. What's going to happen? I had to mention it, Panama Papers and the environment of Panama Papers. This injects a new element into the problem in that so far we know we have cases where the rich pay lower effective tax rates than others. And that's in a case, well, where we know how much income they declared or how much wealth they declared, um, and we know what tax they paid, and we know relative to everybody else. Panama Papers, I think, is only going to increase this demand for basic fairness of having the rich not pay less. But the problem is, is that because of the lack of transparency, we don't even know what the true effective tax rate being paid is in some of these cases, of course, because it may be that you know it is the case that people have wealth and sources of income that are in places offshore uh, where it's not entering into a tax calculation, so we don't actually have a true assessment of the total magnitude. And of course, I think this will only exacerbate voter antipathy, where certainly in the US today, polls show that a majority, a large majority of Democrats, and even uh, almost a majority of Republicans think that the tax system uh, is stacked in favor of the wealthy. I hadn't found an analogous polling question for the UK, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if the, the, diff, if, if the results, uh, I would expect that the results would, would be similar. So that's how I think the US and the UK debate may actually be moving in a very similar direction, even if it may not seem like that at all, given the zaniness of this year's 2016 presidential campaign um, and, what's, and what's going on in the UK today. Okay, two conclusions, broad conclusions, just to wrap up before we take questions. The first is that what we've shown, or what we try to show in this book, is that rising inequality alone isn't sufficient to generate broad support for taxing those at the top. Broad support for taxing those at the top depends instead on a belief that the state has offered privileges to the wealthy and that the tax system ought to be used to remove those privileges. Thank you.